Hello and welcome to another episode of the Phenomenal Podcast, the podcast where we talk to you about women who have been underrepresented and written out of Irish history. I am Maria Butler, PhD student now. I have gone back to college to start a PhD in my favourite Irish woman, Marion Keyes. This week, we have my friend, the lovely, talented writer, Mairead Kiernan, back again. And Mairead is going to talk to us about... Maeve Brennan. And who's Maeve, Mairead? So Maeve was born in Ranla in 1917. She became a writing sensation at The New Yorker. She lived a life of glamour and excitement, but she lost it all and she kind of ended up penniless on the streets of New York. So it's a story with everything. It's got glamour, it's got cocktails, and it's got a pretty dark undercurrent. So it's like the early, the early gal sex in the city. I mean, I really want to superimpose Maeve's black and white face onto Carrie Bradshaw's body, and I've been thinking of ways to do it all week. But I'm kind of thinking maybe it's disrespectful. I don't know. Like, she has family. Maeve, I mean, not Carrie Bradshaw. I was going to say I'd hope that that Maeve would be somewhat less of an irritation than Carrie Bradshaw was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you a bit about her writing right then. So she wasn't a sex columnist, first of all. She wrote for The New Yorker and before that for Harper's Bazaar between the years kind of 1940s to... 1970s and a little bit into the 80s and she wrote very wry observational kind of stuff about the people of New York City. A Nora Ephron if you will. I was thinking of Nora Ephron as well so actually we'll start at the beginning okay so I'll bring you back to early days of Maeve. So Maeve like I said she was born in 1917 in January 6th which is less than a month before my birthday but we don't share a star sign so (laughs) sorry if, if anyone's disappointed. Um, But Maeve is from uh, Irish political royalty. So both her parents were super involved in Irish politics at the time. Her father was Robert Brennan. So he fought in the 1916 Rising in Wexford. He was a commandant for the volunteers in Emiscorti. And he was actually sentenced to death for the 1916 Rising, but had his uh, sentence commuted to penal servitude, which I don't really know what that is, but I think it's like, You don't have to die. You can go. Penal servitude is imprisonment with hard labour. Thank you, Maria, for that fun fact, which is good to know. It is. And he was actually in Sussex jail when Maeve was born. Poor Una was on her own. But Una was an independent woman who was well able of taking care of herself. Uh, She was a feminist herself and a Republican. And she was also involved in the 1916 Rising. She was one of three women who raised the Irish flag over the Anethium in Wexford, which is a word I had to Google how to pronounce today. I didn't realise there was such a presence of 1916 in Wexford. I know. I know. There was, apparently, yeah. And Robert Brennan was a big friend of Dev. So he was anti-treaty. And then it was in 1934 that Dev appointed him basically as Ireland's first ambassador to the United States. It was kind of under a different title. It was like Irish legation, but he was essentially the first Irish ambassador. And the whole family moved over there to Washington when young Maeve was just 17 years old. That's one way to spend the end of your teenage years. I know, I know. 
And when they went over there and poor Una then, who had been, like I said, a big political mover and shaker in her own right, it kind of seems like she took a bit of a backbench at this point, I suppose. And her role was more, I don't want to diminish it, but like kind of hosting parties and kind of moving in those kind of circles. But it seems to have been a pretty peaceful move and a pretty happy childhood, actually, despite the tumultuous beginning. Also, lest we forget that De Valerius Ireland was was one that was very kind to feminists and absolutely did everything in his power to keep women in the workforce and support it in the ways they wanted before and in no way at home in the kitchen. Yeah, I think like there's less known about Una, although she has her own, like she's her own Wikipedia page and a lot, she's included in a lot of Wexford historical chapters and that, but she did grow quite fatigued and kind of disillusioned, I guess, with the Ireland that became, you know, and the Ireland that she fought for. And Maeve doesn't seem to have been very political at all. I think she had a great love for Ireland, but I don't think she had great faith in the politics or the systems that were there. It's a pattern we've seen before on this podcast, so it doesn't surprise me at all. Of course, you're old hat, you know the story. So anyway, Maeve went to college, she went to the American University and she studied English. And after that, this might interest you, Maria, she studied librarian studies. Always a fan of the MLIS. Although I should say, so Maeve started it probably between the years of 1938 or 1940. And she told various people that she had done it but there's no record of her actually finishing it. So it's kind of thought from her biography that I think she might have had something of a breakdown, which is unfortunately a sign of things to come. There was definitely some upheaval in her life and she was in love with a very, a man with a very unsexy name called Walter Kerr. Oh yes, Walter Kerr. And that is the start of more unsexy names that you will hear in this podcast no offense to Walter like I looked him up he looks fine you know just I kind of like the name Walter Kerr because it's like that word back that like olden way of complaining about somebody of like oh you Kerr wasn't that a thing yeah that's what Liam said I'd, I'd never heard of it but yeah apparently it was a, a light kind of way of admonishing someone yeah I kind of think of it as a bit of a scoundrel or something yeah, a bit of a, oh, you buffoon. Yeah, kind of like dog with a, a bad dog with a W in it. <laughs> well, he may have been a bit of a bad dog. He kind of broke Maeve's house, I think. Although I don't really know what happened between them, but she was left disappointed by whatever did or didn't materialise. Disappointed as in the, like, inverted commas, old-fashioned, you were supposed to marry me and didn't disappointed. It's really unclear. So he worked at the university that she studied at, the um, the American University, but he wasn't he wasn't her teacher. There isn't really a record of them as a couple. So I don't think it was a long term thing. But Maeve spoke about him a good bit in her life and especially in her later years, actually, when she was quite unwell, she kind of trying to reminisce. It seemed like he was kind of a love of her life. But I don't know if that kind of if it was unrequited or not. Mm hmm. But I think at this point, I should say that I'm sure it was requited because Maeve was a real hottie. And I'm sure we'll put some pictures up on Instagram and all that for everyone to ogle her respectfully. Yeah, she had a very distinctive look. So she had a big black bun that she always wore in her hair. 
and she had red lipstick and she has a very um a very lovely thin face which doesn't sound lovely but you'll see what I mean she kind of looks like maybe like Emily Blunt or something okay hold on I'll just have a look there yeah and she was very glamorous like she was very well dressed apparently at the New Yorker she was described as a distraction oh she's very pretty do you know who she looks a bit like is do you know that film center stage yes do you know the dark haired ballerina in it whose mom works in the ballet school but she falls in love with the doctor and gets the eating disorder and drops out of the the ballet program no I don't really remember it that well I've watched it a lot I really like the dance at the end of it so speaking of Maeve's glamour so her first job in 1943 her first writing job anyway was at Harper's Bazaar and it was under the wing of Carmel Snow, who was also an Irish woman, which is kind of interesting because I guess it's that typical Irish abroad thing where they kind of take care of each other. And this woman really seems to have kind of taken her under her wing. So I thought that was nice. That is kind of nice. It's funny, actually, because I've noticed recently on like Instagram and stuff that you'd see the editor of Glamour is an Irish woman, Samantha Barry. And I'd noticed that like there's pictures of her and Ashling B cozying up to each other and other like Irish people who are there over in New York and then they're shown around by Samantha Barry and it's just kind of nice and I wish that I was part of that group but I'm not. I mean I was just gonna say Maria why were we not invited? (laughs) What happened? They they missed next time you know next time. (laughs) So May started there like I said it was 1943 so it's right at the time of the Second World War. So what she wrote about, it was fashion, but a lot of it was real hands-on stuff. It was about making your own dresses and how to sew. And there was a lot of also interesting kind of people writing for the magazine, like Truman Capote, Virginia Woolf. It was a very exciting place for a young woman to be. In New York, in the late 40s, all these young women single and going out together because all the men were at war. And... It was so much fun that when Una's parents went back to Ireland in 1947, Maeve decided to stay in New York. I mean, if you were given the choice of go back to Ireland in the 1940s or stay in New York and potentially hang out with Virginia Woolf, which one would you choose? Well, I like to think that I'd stay in New York, but family ties are a very, you know, they're very strong. And I think staying in an unknown city by yourself as a single woman at that time was pretty brave. But it was kind of in her nature. Like she she wasn't, she wasn't nostalgic like that. She, she loved hustle and bustle. So I do imagine it was an easy decision for her. And yet Ireland had nothing really to offer someone like her at the time. In 1949, she started at the New Yorker and she was there really on and off until the early 80s, from what we can tell. Like it's freelance work, so we don't really know exactly when she kind of stopped. It was definitely most prolific in the 50s and 60s. Just to backtrack before you get onto the New Yorker stuff, when she was in Harper's Bazaar, is there any record of her hanging out with the likes of Truman Capote and Virginia Woolf? Or is it just that they were writing for Harper's Bazaar at around the same time? It's just that they were writing for Harper's Bazaar at the same time, yeah. Okay. I mean, I imagine they hung out, but like, I think they would have probably been more like celebrity correspondent. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure they they wouldn't have been like in the offices. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how journalistic places work. Well, I mean, me neither, especially in the 40s. Like, 
You mean they didn't all talk like this all the time and Clark Gable wasn't there? <laughs> See? I know, yeah. I think she was on a crime beat, you know, doing the first crime beat for Harper's Bazaar. Chasing down tickos. She wore her trouser suits and smoked her cigars. <laughs> we can take this out, right? Yeah, or we can leave it in. <laughs> and inflict that on the world. Oh my God. My terrible 40s accent, because people spoke differently then. So at the New Yorker, I mean, if you thought Harper's Bazaar was fun and wild, the New Yorker was even more fun and even wilder. I mean, it was definitely more men, but it's really that mad men kind of world where people drank really early in the day and all the men kind of had their apartments in their city and their family living in the suburbs. It was a very exciting place for Maeve to be and it was her home. And it'll kind of make more sense as we go more into her story, but it really did become her home and it became a place where she found refuge, even in her darkest moments. And was she, when she was at the New Yorker now, was she, was she writing? Yes. So she had a byline. It was uh, the long winded lady. It was a column. It was a column where she wrote under an anonymous persona. And this persona was someone, was a young woman living in New York who lived a transient lifestyle, who lived out of hotels and smoked cigarettes early in the morning. And she would view passersby and describe their style and all the kind of minute details of them. I listened to a podcast about Mae Brennan, another one, if you can believe, and they described it as unclickbaitable writing. It was fabulous writing about nothing. You couldn't really write a headline for it of local woman sees man with dog. It would be that kind of thing. But it's all about the humor and the wit and her wry nature. And that was really who she was. She was very charming. She made the best friends of her life there. Her editor was William Maxwell. And he was really someone who came to be her supporter as well when her life started to take a a bad turn. But the column that she wrote, The Long-Winded Lady, it was also basically herself, much like Carrie Bradshaw writing about herself. Maeve did live out of hotels and short-term leases. She did not want to put down roots anywhere, which is kind of a funny way to look at what we consider stability. Mm-hmm. No, that's very interesting, because you mentioned that she was freelance the whole time as well, pretty much. Yeah, like they also published her short stories. So I, I can't say it for sure, but I think it was pretty much if she had a story, like she would send it in and, and they would hopefully publish it. I think it's just for a single woman at the time, I guess, like you don't really have an image what independence for women looks like. And I think she was just trying her best to keep her head above water. She was also very bad with money, which became a real problem for her, but it could also explain why she moved a lot. She also had a lot of cats. She had between five and 12 cats at any time. And I can now think of four of my friends to whom Maeve Brennan is about to become their personal hero. (laughs) I know, to have so many cats that people can't count them, it's incredible. They're like, I think she has seven, but I don't know. Also, don't forget that she went to library school. Oh, (laughs) library school. It's what it's called. Like like beauty school, yeah, library school. She did go to library school, yeah. So that so work life was all going well anyway, living that single life. And then she actually got married in 1954. And would you like to hear the unsexy name of the man she married? Yes, please. St. Clair McElway. 
I kind of like the name Sinclair. Why do you like all these old-timey names? Because I spent most of my childhood trying to turn myself into a Victorian eight-year-old. <laughs> Did it work? Clearly not. <laughs> Clearly not. Oh, yeah, but, like, I'd wear, like, white ruffle socks and, like, patent shoes and... Oh, my God, but you but you looked like a Victorian ghost because, like, you're so, you're so blonde as well. I'd get a fright if I saw you, I'd say. Like, whoa! But, yeah, no, like, genuinely... Sure, you've heard the names that I'd name my child if I was to have a child. They're all, like, at least 80 years old. <laughs> you can put St. Clair on the list, yeah. I like that name. I think it's it's very, like, I'm off to the trenches. I hope that you'll be here when I return. But how would you call him? Like, you know what I mean? Like, hey, St. Clair. Like that? Like, it just feels weird. Sainty, sainty baby. <laughs> <laughs> sainty baby it is. Or McElway. McElway. Anyway, she married him in 1954 and he was her colleague from The New Yorker. But if Maeve was eccentric, he was equally eccentric and had his fair share of troubles. So he was an alcoholic. He was also a marriage enthusiast. What's a marriage enthusiast? He was married many times. And his colleagues at the New Yorker referred to him as Marry Me Mac because he married everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So Maeve is sometimes called his third wife and sometimes his fourth. So again, like with the cats, if you can't keep track, it's not really a great sign. But sure, if he loved it, if he loved getting married, then, you know. Why not? I have now imagined that she named each of her cats after one of his ex-wives. Oh, I love that. Yeah. But I hope they were treated well by her. Heaven forbid. Yeah. So she married St. Clair anyway, and they seem to have had a pretty bad impact on each other. They were both terrible with money. They both have mental health problems, alcohol problems. It was not a good match. During that time, they did move out to the suburbs. They moved to Sneedon's Landing which seems to be kind of a quiet suburban community and Maeve hated it there. It didn't have any of the, you know, the lights or the excitements of New York. She did write a couple of short stories there. And interestingly enough, a lot of the short stories she wrote during that time were from the view of an Irish maid. Oh, like a, like a contemporary Irish maid or a, an oldie Irish maid? No, a contemporary one. I think at Sneedon's Landing, a lot of, the people in the neighborhood would have had Irish maids. You know, Irish girls would come over on the boat and work there for summers or stay and send money home. So I think it's kind of interesting that Maeve saw herself more in line with the Irish maids than maybe her peers in the neighborhood. You know, that that's how she aligned herself. That is interesting. Yeah. Right. So they divorced in 1959 to no one's surprise. And following her divorce, It was the most productive period of her life. She wrote a huge amount of columns and short stories, but it was also the most chaotic time of her life. And it was kind of when her mental health started to deteriorate. So we'll start with the positive. Okay, so 1969, The New Yorker publishes a series of her columns, Yay Maeve. And they also publish In and Out of Never Everland, which was a series of short stories that she wrote. They were not published outside of the U.S., they were like they were very well respected they were well received but like a lot of books are published every year and it doesn't mean that they become bestsellers so it didn't it, it was respected but didn't set the world on fire essentially no i mean she was unheard of in ireland until the 2000s oh right 
Oh yeah, she wasn't published in Ireland until the year 2000. At all at all? No, no. Like her stuff has been republished now. Long Island Press published her novella The Visitor, which is fab because I read it. That was found at Notre Dame University. Like it was just dug up this unpublished novella that she'd written. Okay, cool. All right, let's backtrack so we can get to that. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. <laughs> so she was doing well with that, but it was the beginning of her mental health problems and her financial problems. She grew increasingly paranoid. Like she was reported to think people were following her out to get her. She thought people were kind of putting cyanide in her toothpaste. And it was really around this time that her friends at the New Yorker mainly men, one of them was William Maxwell, who was her editor, they became very, very concerned about her, but didn't really know how to help her. Her family were far away. And there was a changing attitude to mental health at the time that was both positive and negative. So in the past, before until the 1950s, it was very easy to institutionalise people. And that's how we ended up with, you know, so many people being institutionalised for life that didn't need to be, that had short-term mental health problems or learning disabilities or just people who really wanted to get rid of them. So that was starting to be dismantled. So by this stage, which is we're in the 70s now, there was a care in the community system, which meant that it was it was very difficult, really impossible to have someone committed. The person really had to sign themselves in and sign themselves out. Which is, again, it's a good thing and a bad thing. They did convince her to sign herself into university hospital, which was good. And since then, I think they found more of a balancing act between the two systems. If this is the 70s, just for context, what approximately what age does that put Maeve at now? So she would be in her 50s. This kind of starts around the mid-60s and continues really to the rest of her life. But it's in the 70s that stuff kind of takes a real downward turn and even though she always kept up her glamour like she always had her hair done and her lipstick applied it looked like she wasn't taking her makeup off in between which I know sounds like a really small thing but like those elements of hygiene are are signs you know that someone's not taking care of themselves like her living situation was also a huge stress because I did say that she loved uh, having short-term leases and living out of hotels but that added to her stress and her mental health problems was that, you know, she was constantly moving. She couldn't, she was terrible with money, like really, really terrible. There's a story, and now it is it is a little bit later into the 70s, but she was spotted, like she cashed her check at the New Yorker and then she literally went across the street and started handing out money. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned she was a drinker. Is she drinking throughout this whole time? I'm not sure. I think she had some bad habits with it, but I wouldn't say she was an alcoholic. There doesn't it doesn't seem to be said. Oh, okay. So we've another great name. Her friend Milton Greenstein. Hmm. He was actually doling her out money, kind of like an allowance for a time as well. But then that made her kind of paranoid that he was spending her money or that he was abusing it, which is a very real concern. And especially if you're feeling vulnerable and I'm sure, I mean, my heart just kind of bleeds for her. Like it must have been really hard to know who to trust. For sure. I do love the irony of getting her green from Greenstein. <laughs> getting that green, you know, just getting that paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can see how it would be 
difficult to know who to trust. I imagine, though, by the sounds of it, she had a fairly close-knit circle. Like, she made her own family in, in New York. She did. She was hard to keep track of, though, because she moved so much and then she would kind of just take off. Like, I know her friends, later in her life, they had a bank account in her name, which I thought was really sweet. And then if they, if she was kind of withdrawing money from it, they'd know she was up and about and kind of functioning. But I mean, when she was on medication, I think she was pretty good and everything. It's just when she started to feel well, she would stop taking it and her problems would begin. But she did return to Ireland. So she had a number of trips kind of over the year. And then 1973, so right around the time of her first kind of big breakdown, when she checked herself into the hospital, she returned to Ireland with the intention of moving back. Because Ireland in the early 70s is exactly the place you want to move to from New York. I know. I think it was a bit of a culture shock. You're picturing the aisles and you come back and you see those pullback chimneys. It's a grimmer, grimmer story. And she stayed with a famous relative. So she's actually related to Roddy Doyle. Oh, no way. Yeah. His mother is her cousin. That family, eh? Bags of talent. I know. With her parents and her, you know, her relatives. It's a who's who. So she went back and she stayed with them in Kilbarrick, which is where Roddy writes all, he sets all of his, the Barrytown trilogy and all those. He was just a teenager at the time, but she was kind of staying in the granny flat out the back. Mm Mm-hmm. And he describes her as eclectic, I suppose, definitely glamorous, but with frayed sleeves, constantly smoking and kind of exotic. He thinks she was the first divorcee to set foot in their house. That's not surprising. Divorce only became legal in Ireland in 96. Imagine the stir she would have caused had she stayed. She would have probably felt quite alone or quite exciting, you know, who knows? And she'd kind of fallen out with some of her family as well, some of her sisters and brothers, because she'd written a not very kind short story that kind of didn't paint a great picture of their relatives. So her trip back to Ireland wasn't altogether successful. I think the, yeah, the image that she had created in her mind of like, this is home and this is where I'll I'll find peace. Ireland was different. I mean, she was 17 when she left. So one day she just said to Isa, who was Roddy's mother, she said, I'm leaving. And they're like, what? And she's like, yeah. And she just left. And then, and that was, and that was what she did. And then they got a call a few hours later from like the guards who had kind of found her wandering around and she was a bit lost, but she still didn't want to go back. She was like, nope, nope. So they couldn't stop her. She was determined to go back to New York. And if anyone is interested, there's a really lovely podcast for The New Yorker where Roddy Doyle does tell the story of her living in the house and he reads some of her uh, short story Christmas Eve. And it's nice, you know, it's sweet. As you were saying that, I was like, I'd love Roddy Doyle to do a short story about when his eccentric distant relative came over from New York and shook them all up. I know, I would... I would love that too. Yeah, like exotic stranger shakes up family life. So she went back to New York, which was really the only home she ever she ever knew. And unfortunately, this is kind of her her ultimate descent. Her friends found it really hard to keep in touch with her because she moved around so much and she would purposefully cut them off and didn't trust them. She did go to live with her brother in Illinois for a while, but then again, she just announced one day she was leaving. So that was that. 
And it did seem like she was living in the New Yorker offices for a while on the 19th floor. They had this little cubicle beside the toilets where girls could stay and rest if they had their period. I love that. I know. That should definitely become a thing again. I know, I know. The tyranny. I can't believe we lost that. Why does the world go into? I want a period room. <laughs> yeah, goddamn you, feminism. I mean, I don't know if you'd want the eclectic, you know, slightly elderly lady living in it, but, <laughs> but that was what she was doing. And then eventually, as the 80s kind of went on, to her friends, she almost became this kind of mythical figure that they would glimpse from time to time on the street. And sometimes she would address them and have a, you know, a perfectly normal conversation and sometimes just walk right by them, either on purpose or by accident. So she was homeless. I mean, whatever you count homeless, like I don't know if she was living on the streets and probably in short-term accommodation and in and out of psychiatric institutions. But she did finish her days in peace. She was in Lawrence Nursing Home until 1993 when she died. And it seems like she had a nice setup there. She wrote constantly letters, many things that are unpublished stories and things like that. And it's kind of interesting, I think, some of the stuff that she wrote, because a lot of the time she was out, she wasn't really in her right mind. You know what I mean? She didn't always grasp what was real. But in some of them, she imagined that she was writing for the Irish press, which I think is kind of nice because her father was a founding member of it. Okay. Yeah. And it kind of just makes me think of like the road not taken. Like if she had gone back to with her family, it makes me think that she's living out some sort of life for herself where she did go back and was writing for the papers, probably not having quite as much fun. And she also wrote about Marion Walter Kerr as well. Remember old Walter from the university? Oh, that's kind of like, it's very bittersweet. It's like an old lady living out. Yeah, as you said, living out her other life. I don't know how I feel about that. I know. The poor thing. I mean, her story is really one that a lot of people have latched onto since her work started to be republished. And I think it is because there's that vulnerability in her story that we all connect to as people and also as Irish people. Like she was, an, you know, an immigrant over there by herself and she fell through the cracks like a lot of people did. And another thing I was kind of thinking about what you were talking about, like her mental health issues and stuff is the medication that would have been used at the time would have been very strong. Yeah, no, I mean, mental health studies were still really developing, as was the medication. And I mean, I don't know what she was on. And I really wouldn't claim to have any right to tell anyone what they should and shouldn't take. So, you know, whatever she made, the decisions she made and she did the best she could. I was getting really nervous for a few minutes with the time period that was in it when you started talking about the mental health stuff that that lobotomy was going to make an appearance in this episode and I'm so glad it didn't. Lobotomies are sad. You can quote me on that, they're sad. And this would have been like peak lobotomy time as well. Oh, I'm just so glad. So glad that that didn't happen. No, no, she she didn't have a lobotomy. She died of a heart attack. She's buried in Queens, New York. I mean, it's a bittersweet story. You heard about her first because you read her stuff, some of her stuff. Yes, well, I came across a few of her short stories. She's in the Granta book of the Irish short story in 2012, which was edited by Anne Enright. And I think that was actually the first place I read her. And then recently I got Maeve Brennan's book from my friend Maeve in Ranala. I mean... <laughs> 
Like, it's in the stars. Maeve looks a bit like Maeve Brennan, actually. She does. She's got that look, actually. Yeah, she does. Well spotted. But I was at her house and she had The Visitor, which is her unpublished novella. And I wanted to take a look at it and I borrowed it. And then I read the the preface at the start and it was her life story. And I was immediately sucked in. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really heartbreaking. But also it would make a great biopic. Half the women we do in these episodes, I'd say beyond half the women, this is something that genuinely kind of upsets me when we're talking about these women and learning about these women is that there's so many amazing films and we just don't even hear the stories, let alone a film of them. I know, I know. Hopefully soon. Emma O'Donoghue wrote a, a play about her life, actually. You know, Emma O'Donoghue wrote Room in 2012. It was called Talk of the Town. Now, I didn't see it but I'm sure, I heard it was good. Um, I think her family took a bit of umbrage with some of the coarse kind of language. I think it was, they depicted Maeve as being a real, like, I guess like a modern career woman who's just like effing and blinding. And, you know, I, th- I actually noticed that in a movie recently. I can't remember what it was, but it was some society woman depicted in like the 50s. And it was all fuck this and fuck that. And it's like, that's just not how like society women spoke in public at the time. It's like a modern thing that we put on women to kind of make them seem badass, I think, when we depict them in the past. Do you know what I mean? I get that. It's an interesting way to to think about it. I guess, though, that when you're kind of, when you're working through certain mediums, particularly the mediums such as film, you kind of almost have to use a shorthand with your audience to make sure that they understand. Yeah what you're trying to portray so if the shorthand is swearing in the modern context is is much easier to to portray your woman in a particular light rather than if you had her as quite possessed I guess in the way that she spoke because nowadays people who don't swear would be considered quite prim and uptight and if you don't necessarily have the time to kind of go into those nuances it's it's a way to do it no it's fair I mean you don't have to depict someone as they actually were or in the words that they spoke and it's not uncommon for families to not like the depiction of their family member you know I don't know if that they didn't like it they just they just didn't think it was accurate you know but again yeah what else is new like if someone made a movie in my life I'm sure I'd be instantly flattered and then horrified by what they put on the screen. Oh, if somebody made a movie out of you, you would freak. (laughs) I know. I'd love it. Like, I'd be going on about it. I'd be writing my own Wikipedia page. Why would they make a movie of my life, though, you know? I feel like you'd tell everybody about it and then you'd see it and then you'd, like, try and burn every copy of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd do a little book burning in the back garden. (laughs) They got it all wrong. I'm not like that at all. (laughs) Yeah. I never said that on Monday. That was a Saturday evening. (laughs) (laughs) So do you have any other thoughts on Maeve Brennan or anything else that you wish to share? Um, I don't think so. I would advise anyone to look her up. I think The Visitor is a really good short story. Or sorry, it's not a short story. It's a novella. It's, It's a short novel and it's very accessible. And it's about a girl who returns to Ireland to reconnect with her grandmother who's her her last relative and it's very nuanced and it's very bittersweet and it's really about loneliness and connection 
So, but it's not as depressing as it sounds. Good, good for, good for coronavirus. <laughs> perfect. Perfect for a little coronavirus evening. <laughs> oh, that makes coronavirus sound so much more pleasant. <laughs> I know, I know. Just a little corona morning, you know, no biggie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maraid, for, for coming back to the podcast. You were a gem. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it was a de- it was a delight to research and a delight to record. <laughs> and thank you everybody for listening. If you would like to go back and listen to any of our previous episodes, they're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, loads of other ones that I can't remember the name of now, uh, but pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. I would really, really appreciate it if you could like and review and share it with people so that people can listen to it because quite a lot of work goes into researching these people and it would be great if loads of people could find out about them. And yeah, if anybody wants to contact us, they or me, now that Sean is on her break, um, you can contact me through Facebook or Instagram. And yeah, catch you next week for my next episode where I'll have another wonderful guest. Goodbye.